to die. There was a word I might conjure to describe what it's like to be a sports fan in the state of Georgia. It's the word almost. <laughs> the Falcons were almost the Super Bowl champions in 2017. University of Georgia was almost the national champions just a few years back. They almost beat Alabama in 2012. If Aaron Murray's pass had just been knocked down, they'd had another shot at the end zone. They almost beat the uh, Auburn Tigers several years back ago, but the miracle in the Plains play wasn't meant to be. And then this past year, just like what a month ago, uh, the Atlanta Braves almost would have gone on to play in the World Series if not for one inning, right? Um, so it's just almost. There's a lot, a lot of, a uh, lot of disappointment when it comes to being a Georgia fan, and that's our topic that we want to talk about today: is this idea of being almost saved. Our text comes from Acts chapter 26. Let me give you just a little bit of background of what's happening in this text before we read it together. Acts chapter 26: Paul is standing before Governor Festus and King Agrippa, and he's giving an account. He's giving a, basically a defense of why he should not continue to be in jail. Um, he's made an appeal to Caesar, and so they're hearing Paul's case, and they're going to decide what to do with the Apostle Paul. And so part of what we'll read today is a portion of, I'm sorry, we'll read, be reading a portion of Paul's defense um, before these two men. So if you would, let's stand to read together from God's Word, Acts chapter 26. We'll be reading verses 24 through 29. Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from, that it's not our opinion of people that we know in our life that matters. It's not what somebody said on TV, but rather it's what God thinks, and we don't have to wonder what God thinks. He wrote it down. So let's read together from God's Word, Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would not to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so we want to walk through these words of Paul and his defense. Remember, he's standing before these two men. He's expecting that uh, they're going to make some sort of a sentence where he'll continue in jail Perhaps he'll be set free. Paul's not really sure how this is all going to play out. Um, but So he's meeting before these two men there in Caesarea um, as part of the Judean province. So let's start at verse 24. It says, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that is, interrupted Paul and said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Paul had just been telling them about the Lord Jesus. He had just been telling them about how a man had been resurrected from the dead. And upon hearing this, the governor, the guy presiding over this trial, says, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. All this learning that you've been doing all these years has convinced you of something that is not possibly true. And so as soon as Paul, Festus hears Paul exclaim about Jesus rising from the dead, he bursts out and tells Paul, Paul, you're nuts. And Paul answered him, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, 
What I'm saying is both true and rational. And then he goes on to give some of his case. He turns his his attention at this point now directly to King Agrippa. Now, this is very unusual for uh, someone to do, to address royalty directly. But on this occasion, Paul, boldly speaking by the Holy Spirit, does exactly that. And he says to uh, King Agrippa, verse 26, For the king knows about these things, because he's Jewish, and and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things about Jesus has escaped the king's notice. You've been paying attention to what's been happening with this person named Jesus and the rise of Christianity in your province, in this area that you're over. He's aware of all these things. For these things have not been done, he says, in a corner. That is, they've not been done out of the light of day. They've been um, very much in the headlines of the newspaper. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe in the Old Testament prophets? I know, he says, that you believe. In other words, Paul's telling us here, you know everything that I'm talking about, King Agrippa. You know everything about the Old Testament prophets. You grew up Jewish like the rest of us did. You went through Jewish school like the rest of us did. You learned Jewish history like the rest of us did. You know those prophecies from the Old Testament, and you've been watching those things being fulfilled in the headlines of the news around here lately. And so he says all of this stuff has been happening in full view of everyone. And so Paul is telling us that King Grippa knows about the Old Testament prophecies. He's telling us that King Grippa knew about all these events surrounding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so he's telling us that King Agrippa knew about the spread of Christianity through the Roman world. And now after all of that, King Agrippa has had the chance to hear straight from the mouth of the Apostle Paul an explanation of all of these events. Friends, it is clear that if King Agrippa has a problem with giving his life to Jesus Christ at this moment, it is not a problem of information. You follow me? King Agrippa knows everything that he would possibly need to know in order to now make a decision for Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves in and addresses King Agrippa, something very unusual, personally, directly to royalty, and he begins to press him for a decision for Jesus Christ. This is remarkable. Right there in the middle of Paul's trial where he's supposed to be defending himself, He's trying to convert one of the people who's, on the, uh, on the, you know, who's up there who's part of the jury. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, in a short time, in the little bit of time that we've been standing here and conversing back and forth, he says, would you try to persuade me to become a Christian like you? Basically, he's saying here, Paul, you're one of the most passionate people that I've ever met. Paul, you're one of the most smartest people that I've ever met. Your intellect is very much Um, there for us to see. And then Paul says, and he says, and so you're trying to convince me now, though, to become a Christian just in this little short time of you standing before us here for this trial? And then Paul says to him, verse 29, whether short or long, I would that to God that not only you, but also everyone, all who hear what I'm saying here this day, might become such as I am, that is to become a follower of Christ, except for these chains which I have around my hands and feet. Friends, do you see that the Apostle Paul is preaching for a decision? He's not just giving a nice speech. He's trying to bring these people to a decision point in their life, and he's just about to ask everybody in the room to bow their head and close their eyes and lead them in a prayer to receive the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this moment. Notice what happens next, verse 30. It says, Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them as well. Now, by the king standing to his feet, so Apostle Paul appeals to this guy, tries to get him to make a decision for Jesus Christ, and then the next thing that happens is the king stands up, 
and he walks out of the room. He stands up, he turns on his heel, and he says, basically by doing that, I'm out of here, conversation over, not interested in what you're selling. Verse 31, it says, And when they had withdrawn from the room, they began saying to one another, This man Paul is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. King Agrippa goes on to say, verse 32, that this man Paul could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, one of the reasons why Governor Festus and King Agrippa did not make a decision here on Paul's case is because Paul had appealed to Caesar. It would have been um, an affront to the Caesar's power and to his authority to usurp his right to make a ruling in this case. They could have, but they would have also uh, exposed themselves to the, uh, to, to, the, to the ire of the Caesar, and they didn't want to do that. And so they're more than happy to say, okay, we could go ahead and make a decision, a ruling on this right here. Paul, you can go free, but because you appealed to Caesar, we're just going to go ahead and send you along to Caesar. We don't want to mess with his realm of authority. All right, well, that's our text for today. That's our treatment of this. And so it brings us to the point where we want to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, that's great for King Agrippa. That's great for Governor Festus. They heard the gospel. Sorry that they didn't respond to it, or at least not that we know of. But I mean, how does this help me, you know, get bills paid? How does this help me uh, with, all, with my wishes for the Bulldogs this year? I mean, how does this help me where I'm living um, in my everyday life? What difference does this make to me? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, right here we have the, the last that we are ever going to hear in the Bible about King Agrippa. This is the very last time in all of the Bible that we ever hear anything about Governor Festus. And so it raises the question, well, what happened to these two guys? And I'm sure you're dying to know. And if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyway. So um, let, let me just share with you a little bit about what happened to these two fellows. Gov uh, Governor Festus was the only of all the governors of Judea to die during his term of service in office. Um, all the other governors of Judea, they didn't live on, they didn't stay in the role until they died. They retired, went on to other things, promoted, whatever it might have been. But Governor Festus was the only um, who died while he was in office. In fact, he died in 62 AD, less than three years after hearing the Apostle Paul preach to him in Acts chapter 26. And as far as we know, Governor Festus never made a decision for Jesus Christ. As far as we know, Governor Festus never declared Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He never asked Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, as far as we know. As far as we know, King Agrippa continued to rule his kingdom around the Sea of Galilee until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then when this happened, he returned to Rome um, and lived out the remainder of his life in Rome until the year 72 AD when he died, a little over 10 years after hearing the Apostle Paul preach to him. And again, as far as we know, King Agrippa never made a decision for Jesus Christ. There's no, no record in history, no record anywhere that King Agrippa made that decision to make Jesus his Lord and Savior. Now that being true, neither Festus nor Agrippa probably made a decision for Christ, and so that raises another question, which is, where are those two men today? If they never made a decision for Jesus, what happened to them after they died? What happened to Festus in 62 AD when he died? What happened to King Agrippa in 72 AD when he died? Well, the Bible tells us what happened to them. John chapter 3 and verse 36 says, Jesus speaking here, whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. He says, but whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, that is life eternal, but the wrath of God remains on that person. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
who's in heaven, right? That's where the Father is. He's seated on his throne in heaven. Nobody gets to come up to heaven to where the Father is except through me. The Bible tells us here, declares very clearly that where Festus is today and where Agrippa is today. The Bible tells us clear and definitively, definitively that if they walked away from that encounter with Jesus Christ, that if they never looked back, that if they never made a decision for Christ, never responded to Paul's uh, pushing them to make that decision, then that means that they are in hell today for all of eternity. Friends, the Bible is clear on this. People who believe in Jesus go to heaven when they die. People who do not believe in Jesus go to hell when they die. That is the clear, unequivocal teaching of the Bible. So let me remind us that it is because of this truth that it is important for you and I to press people, like the Apostle Paul did, for a decision. I mean, Paul had all sorts of other things occupying his mind in those moments. I'm sure he's thinking about his chains. I'm sure he's thinking about uh, having to be put on a ship and sent off to Rome. I'm sure he's thinking about the manner of execution that he's going to experience. I'm sure he's thinking about all those churches that he had planted and his concern for those churches and who's going to lead those churches. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had all sorts of things on his mind, but in that moment, as he's standing there on trial before these two men who are going to make this decision about whether Paul goes free or whether he continues in chains, Paul shares the gospel with them and asks them, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? Listen, it's really important for us to have a great reputation in front of people. We can love people, help people, give them food, give them clothing, and all that is good, and we should want to do all that, but we cannot stop right there. I've met people who said, I'm going to let my light shine, right? I'm going to let my little light shine, and that's how I'm going to help people get into heaven. Friends, we need to let our little light shine, but we also need to open our mouth and press people for a decision. People just seeing your light glow won't get them into heaven. They have to make that decision personally themselves to receive Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers. Paul did not stand there in front of Agrippa just to win the argument. Paul did not stand there in front of Agrippa just to prove that he was a good person. Paul did not stand there in front of Agrippa so that his, such that they could see his light shining. Paul stood there in front of Agrippa knowing that he had one shot with this particular guy to share the gospel with him and to press him for a decision for Christ. Being a good Christian in front of people should therefore be viewed not as an end in itself, but as a platform from which we can then talk to people about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, King Agrippa, if he did not make a decision for Jesus, is in hell right now. And how often do you think it crosses his mind, I wish I had not gotten up and walked out of that throne room. I wish I had tarried for a few moments longer. I wish that I had entertain Paul's petition. I wish that I had considered it a little bit longer. I wish that I had, in that moment, the moment that I had, accepted Paul's offer and gave my life over to Jesus. How many times does he remember telling the apostle Paul, Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a believer. He was so close, right? So close. So close but still he missed out. I don't know if you've ever heard of a fellow by the name of Philip Bliss. Philip Bliss was one of the great hymn writers of the 1800s. He died in 1836. He's responsible for writing a great number of hymns, um, some of those being Hallelujah, What a Savior, another being Jesus, 
loves even me, wonderful words of life, and many others. He's also responsible not for writing it as well, but for writing the music to it as well with my soul. Horatio Stafford, I said that right, uh, wrote the words to that, but Philip Bliss wrote the, lyric, or the, the song, the music to it. Um, and he would probably have been considered one of the greatest hymn writers if he had not died at the early age of 38 in 1876. Let me tell you how his death happened. He and his wife, Lucy, were returning to Chicago in 1876 on a train to be part of a Dwight L. Moody crusade. And while they were on the train, a trestle bridge collapsed, and the entire, all the cars of the train uh, plunged down 75 feet into a cold, icy ravine. The train caught on fire, and Mr. Mr. Bliss was able to climb out of his boxcar um, and then out into the field where they were, out into the ravine where they were. And, but the train was on fire, and he went to look around. He could not find his wife, and he realized she was still in the train. So he went back inside of the train while things were ablaze, and uh, he discovered that she was trapped inside by the seat in front of her, had collapsed on her legs, and had pinned her down. And so Philip Bliss went back inside the train to free his wife, Lucy, and when he wasn't able to do so, he made the decision in that moment to stay in the train by her side and both of them died in the fire together that night at the age of 38. Now, Philip Bliss, just prior to this, had written a hymn. It's considered the greatest of all the hymns that he wrote, and the title of it is Almost Persuaded. Um, it was based on the passage that we just learned about, uh, about King Agrippa, and how King Agrippa said, you almost persuaded me, Paul. Um, and here is the line from the sermon that he had heard preached, and the line says, uh, the pastor that he had heard preach on that before he wrote the song, the pastor said, and I quote, he who is almost persuaded is almost saved, but to be almost saved is to be eternally lost. And so moved by this, Philip Bliss went home to write what would be his greatest hymn ever, Almost Persuaded. Here's a few lines from it. It says, almost persuaded, now to believe. Almost persuaded, Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day I'll call, I'll, on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost but lost. And you know, there are going to be a lot of people in hell just like King Agrippa. And there'll be a lot of people in hell just like Governor Festus. There'll be a lot of people in hell who had their chance here on the earth to change their eternal destiny. People who had moms and dads and sisters and co-workers and perhaps even children of their own who begged them to make a decision for Jesus Christ, who pressed them. And they were tempted, they thought about it, they were there in that moment, but they turned on their heel and they walked out of the room. They almost did it. Now, I don't want anyone here this morning to be one of those people. I don't want anyone here this morning, years from now, when your life is over, and you didn't make that decision for Jesus, to be like King Agrippa, saying, I wish, on that Sunday morning, in that small country church, when that preacher pressed 
us for a decision for Jesus Christ. I got up out of the room and I walked out. I don't want anybody here to be almost persuaded. So I'm going to give you that chance to do that right now. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have today. We've been presented with the gospel. We've been presented with the truth, Jesus, that you died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and that by appealing to you, we can invite you into our life. We can have our sins washed away. Lord, if there be any here today who would bow their head today, close their eyes, and say to you, Lord, in these few quiet moments of communion, I need the forgiveness, Jesus, that you and you alone can offer. Lord, I pray that you would give them courage to pray that prayer. Courage, Jesus, to invite you into their life. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body. We commit these quiet moments to you. Speak to our heart about our eternal state, and Lord, may we respond as we need. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.